Hello and welcome back to Language Teaching. I'm your host, Dr. Elenita Irizarri. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the never-ending story, dilemma, controversy surrounding language policy in Puerto Rico. And this particular topic, if I were to describe it in one word, it would be spicy. Why spicy, you might ask? And that is an excellent question. Um, it's a very controversial topic, right? Um, everyone has their own idea of what English teaching should look like. And this leads often to very heated discussions. So this is going to be the spiciest podcast of this season. And so I'm going to go ahead and address some of the issues that are controversial, right? Um, about the topic of English teaching in Puerto Rico. And if we take a deeper look into these language policies that have been established since the island became a U.S. colony in 1898, we could better understand why The majority of Puerto Ricans still do not consider themselves bilingual today. And so I'm going to be focusing my, my discussion on Dr. Torres Gonzalez's 2002 paper. I'm going to go ahead and provide the reference as always in the description of this podcast. So if you're interested, you can go ahead and check that. Note that it's in Spanish. Um, I'm, I haven't been able to, to locate an English version. However, uh, I will be talking uh, about Schmidt's um, 2000, I believe, 14 paper um, later on. I'll also include that in the description. And so if you remember from my previous episode, I talked a lot about language planning and, and language policy, and I also talked about how the different elements, sociological elements, can impact um, the classroom, right? So today I want to talk about two key concepts. The first thing is language planning, right? And Rodriguez Arroyo defines this as the process by which several choices are presented to determine a policy that will affect how certain languages will be used for different social and government ends, right? So, so it's this idea that I want my country, my society, my government to use a specific language for practical purposes, right? And, and, and it's the process of everything that I have to establish policy-wise to ensure that that is successful, okay? Now, now language policy is the act actual choice of one of these language plans, okay? And, and it's how certain languages are employed, right? So language planning would be like, these are my options to achieve my goal of language use. And language policy would be the actual one that you chose to employ. 
And before I continue, I want to make a disclaimer that I'm going to be looking at these controversial uh, topics and issues through a critical language policy analysis lens, right? And, and Toffelson defines this as the social and political implications of particular policies adopted in specific historical contexts, right? So I'm so what that means is that I'm going to be exploring how language policies have influenced the lives of individuals and groups in Puerto Rico who do not have any authority over the policy making process, right? So I'm going to be viewing right the the presence of the US in Puerto Rico since 1898 up until the present times and in order to do that we need to understand the colonial framework with which english has been implemented traditionally in Puerto Rico and by traditionally i mean in 1898 okay So the priority of the U.S. government when they first came to Puerto Rico was to quote unquote civilize Puerto Ricans. They saw us as uncivilized, underdeveloped, um, developing, and they actually thought that this quote unquote civilization um, of Puerto Ricans could be accomplished by reforming public education. And that primarily meant that they had to change the language of instruction from Spanish to English, okay? And so when you look at the literacy rate in Puerto Rico in 1899, it was actually 79.6% of Puerto Ricans could not read or write, okay? And uh, if you want to look at this information, I cited Destier, Pesante, and Irizarry, uh, 2016. I'll go ahead and also include that in my reference section. But why is this um, data or the statistics important? Because you have a literacy rate of less Of, no, a little bit like point something over 30%. That's less than half of the population. Nearly a quarter of the population in Puerto Rico could read or write. And if you go and compare that literacy rate to the same year for the national average of the U.S., you have 13.3% of the U.S. population could not read or write in any language, not just English, but any language. And so I'm not saying this to justify, right, this idea of the U.S. government thinking Puerto Rico was not developed or was not quote unquote civilized, but it's just to give uh, you the audience an understanding of where this um, perception or this bias came from, right? And there was a lot of military presence on the island um, because this was right at the end of the Spanish-American uh, war. So the U.S. government um, military role, right, um, was to mainly dismantle the Spanish regime 
and initiate a cultural, institutional, and judicial assimilation, right? Um, Trias Monge and Silvia Gotay, they, they both wrote separate papers talking about this Americanization process. And throughout this Americanization process that's still happening today, um, there have been eight, you heard that right, eight different language policies that have been implemented in the public education system. And I'm not going to get into the different aspects of these, of each of these eight um, language policies, but um, I will go ahead and link the paper that I'm using as a reference so that you, if you're interested, you can delve more into that. And so you're probably thinking, with what right is the U.S. coming to Puerto Rico to Americanize us? Right. Well, Congress um, approved the Foraker Act, right? And this law established a civilian government in Puerto Rico that consisted of a governor and an executive council. Both were appointed by the president of the United States, a House of Representatives with 35 elected members, a local judicial system with a Supreme Court and a non-voting resident commissioner in Congress. This for a correct also noted that all federal laws of the United States were to be in effect on the island. Notice that I did not mention citizenship. Why? Because that was actually approved by the Jones Act. This Jones Act superseded the Foraker Act. It established a Bill of Rights, and it also granted U.S. citizenship to Puerto Ricans who were born on the island after April 11, 1899. It also created the Senate of Puerto Rico and authorized the election of the resident commissioner who was previously appointed by the president to a four-year term. And also some scholars argue that this Jones Act um, also um, created or helped create, helped develop uh, the current economic crisis that Puerto Rico faces, right? And, and you're probably wondering why. Well, because this Jones Act also exempted Puerto Rican bonds, regardless of where the bondholder may reside from federal, state, and local taxes. And as you know, one of the primary um, debts of the island are to bondholders. And at the center of all this policymaking, right, is the Americanization of the Puerto Rican people. And the fundamental component of that quote-unquote civilization of the Puerto Rican people was the language of instruction and the language use shift from Spanish to English, specifically in public schools. In fact, these public schools educated Puerto Rican children with an emphasis in U.S. history and transmitting the values of the U.S. republicanism. This presented some problems, right? Um, since most teachers on the island were Puerto Rican and were not prepared to teach the various subjects in English. 
as a result, young Americans were brought in to work as teachers. However, there weren't enough to meet the needs of this ambitious project. It's important also to note that Protestant churches had a lot of influence in, in this Americanization process, right? Um, missionaries would come to the island to evangelize Puerto Rico. Why? Because remember, um, the U.S. is a primarily Protestant nation and Spain is obviously a, a, a Catholic a nation in, in nature. And so this Catholicism was seen as anti-democratic. And so in order to entice right, Puerto Ricans to come join these new, at least for the Puerto Ricans, quote unquote, new churches, they allowed Puerto Ricans to have broad participation in the religious communities whether that be in terms of administration and decision-making. These missionaries also founded a variety of churches on the island, and they felt that they were responding to the spiritual needs of Puerto Ricans who joined them. And so this whole Americanization campaign officially ended in Puerto Rico during the 1930s as a result of the Great Depression forcing the U.S. to focus on its economic reconstruction rather than its colonial um, off-posts. And while this um, process officially ended in the 1930s, it's still arguably uh, being done today, forcing each generation of local teachers to negotiate their goals with those of the island's um, Secretary of Education. And so this um, guides me to talk a little bit about languages and the Puerto Rican nationalism during the 1930s. Um, I can't start this um, discussion without mentioning uh, Pedro Albizu Campos, who was a polyglot, a lawyer, an educator, and an advocate for uh, Puerto Rican independence. He denounced American colonialism via his militant independentism. He believed that American culture must be rejected by the Puerto Rican people, and he idealized the Spanish colonization while demonizing the occupation of Puerto Rico. And he did so by referring to Spain as Madre Patria, um, mother country, versus uh, the Americans who were Nordic barbarians, okay? And in order to understand his argument, right, he was one of the few Puerto Ricans who were literate um, and had access to education. In fact, he graduated from Harvard. Um, so, so he's obviously part of the elite political class of Puerto Rico. And he criticized bilingualism in public schools. However, he did advocate for teaching English as a foreign language, just not using English as a tool to Americanize the Puerto Rican population. Albizu Campos's impact on the 30s generation was profound. This generation questioned what the Puerto Rican identity actually was. 
they wrote about the historical and social elements that formed that identity, focusing on the Puerto Rican jibaro and idealizing rural life, coffee, and tobacco farming. This generation of scholars and authors developed a literary genre that defended the Hispanic heritage of Puerto Rico as well as the working class, and they saw Spanish as the cornerstone of Puerto Rican patriotism. Ultimately, this led to the rise of populism in the 40s, right? And this was mainly as a result of laying aside the discussion of Puerto Rico's political status and establishing an agricultural reform where families, right, um, that previously would not have been able to purchase their land could own their land and, and establish this hope of breaking the cycle of poverty. They also um, determined a min minimum wage. They propelled industrialization moving the economy from an agricultural economy into manufacturing. They extended utilities to rural areas. They also established the, an autonomous university, the University of Puerto Rico, and reinforced civic duty. The popular Democratic Party fiercely defended the use of Spanish as the main language of instruction in public schools. They believed that it was key to promoting an authentic Puerto Rican culture, and they finally adopted Spanish as the official language of instruction in Puerto Rico public education in 1947. They also promoted Puerto Rican literature, music, fine arts, as the true Puerto Rican way of life. And to conclude, right, um, this podcast, the major takeaways from today's episode, I hope, um, are how critical the role of local teachers is. While administrators have education goals that reflect the interest of whichever ruling political party is in place, those goals cannot be put into practice without the collaboration of local teachers. Therefore, teachers must be included in deliberations from the very beginning. Their knowledge about local assets and goals must be at the heart of these larger educational debates. So Puerto Rican teachers show that schooling in Puerto Rico has always been a carefully negotiated process. So that's it for today's podcast. Um, be sure to join me next week where we're going to be talking about theories and issues in language acquisition. Uh, we're going to be focusing first on first language acquisition, and then we're going to delve into schools of thought in second language acquisition. As always, stay safe, wear a mask, and see you soon.